1: The zeal of the Trump supporters, their passionate belief that the election was stolen from Trump, that Biden is an illegitimate president and a tyrant who does not have the consent of the people. That is the most important fact to know about today's Republican Party. Today's Republican Party is is run by politicians who do not themselves believe that Biden stole the election but are obliged to pretend they do, or at minimum are obliged not to cast doubt on it, because they are afraid of this politically active and passionate base, some part of which is violent. The party does not have room for anyone who questions the the fundamental passions of this Trump base.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare podcast, December thirteenth, two thousand twenty-one. Barton Gellman is a longtime national security reporter for the Washington Post, for the Atlantic, and elsewhere. His latest article, an Atlantic cover story, is entitled "Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun." He joined me in the Virtual Jungle Studio to talk about the article, to talk about what the Republican Party is doing to position itself to overturn the results of an adverse election in 2024. If necessary, we talked about why Trump is oddly positioned better to do this than in 2020 when he held the powers of the presidency, and we talked about what, if anything, can be done to stop it. We also took questions from a live audience. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 13th, Bart Gelman on Trump's next coup. Bart, I want to start with uh, not this article that you wrote, but one that you wrote in the fall of the election year in which you tried to imagine what something like What ended up happening, which was an effort by the incumbent president not to accept the results of an election that he had lost. I'm wondering if you could briefly summarize the argument that you made in relation to what happened. To what extent do you feel like the events that culminated on January 6th vindicate that article? And to what extent do you think you were overstating the case?
1: I started off the article uh, in September of 2020 with the premise that under no circumstances would Donald Trump ever concede a loss if he did lose the election. That he was irrevocably committed to the idea that only fraud could prevent him from a glorious victory. And I wanted to explore the consequences of that if you have a candidate especially a sitting president who simply declares that he has won despite all evidence of the count uh, and refuses to concede the system doesn't know very well how to handle that we've never actually had it happen before losing candidates have always conceded and the moment of concession is the moment the election is over Uh, there is no overall referee for the election you know there are 10,000 or so election authorities around the country at the county level. There's the Electoral College. There's Congress, which was split. There are uh, numerous state authorities, which vary state by state. There's no one referee that says, pal, you lost the election, go home. And I forecast uh, that he could make a lot of trouble and, and make efforts along a lot of different lines of authority to overthrow the results and he did make those efforts, and they worked honestly better than I thought they would. The one thing that did not happen was the appointment of actual dueling slates of electors for Congress to to uh, to work out. That's not for lack of trying. Trump's central strategy uh, in overthrowing the election then and and will be again next time to persuade state legislatures in Republican states to overturn any results that favor Biden by appointing Trump electors regardless of the vote of the state voters. And here he's taking advantage of some basic facts on the ground. There are six or seven swing states uh, that Biden won in the 2020 election and that are turning blue uh, in presidential politics but that remain governed at home by dominant Republican uh, state legislatures. State House, State Senate is heavily Republican. The statewide voters are beginning to vote Democratic and the Constitution says in Article Two that electors shall be uh, appointed by each state in the manner set by the legislature. And it used to be back in the old days, uh, in the founders days, Legislators actually did appoint electors directly. The voters had nothing to do with choosing a president. That's not been true for 150 years now, and Trump wants to bring it back.
0: All right. So a great deal of your recent article is focused on the culture of the potentially violent movement or the committedly violent movement that are the kind of shock troops of this Coming effort. Uh, But I want to focus first, I'll tack back to that later, but I want to focus first on what is in the last few pages of this article, which is the sort of specific policies that have been enacted at the state level and the legal theory that has been developed in order to facilitate what you just described. So You allude to this in the beginning of the article, but you develop it at the end of the article, which is how is Trump differently situated in an an attempt for 2024 than he was in 2020, despite having lost the powers of the presidency? You argue that he's actually in a better position to make this happen. Walk us through
1: why. Yeah, that's exactly right. What he's lost is he's no longer commander-in-chief, no longer chief law enforcement officer of the United States, no longer in command of the federal bureaucracy. But those tools failed him in his attempt to overturn the election last time. He was, just by uh, a hair, unable to get the Justice Department to back him in his effort to overthrow the election. He was not going to get the military to back him, and uh, he had strong indications from the Joint Chiefs that they would not cooperate. Uh, And so the way he tried to overthrow the election that was more effective was as a politician, um, as a demagogue who commanded the loyalty of tens of millions of supporters, as a litigant, as a party leader. And what happened is that he was thwarted at key moments by the individual decisions of election administrators and public officials. So you had Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, the Secretary of State, who uh, counted and then recounted and recounted and and after the third time, certified that Biden had won the state. Uh, He was a lifelong Republican politician, but he faithfully carried out his duty uh, to be a fair referee of the election. And then you had Governor Kemp, who went along and despite pressure from Trump, also signed the certification. What's happened now? First of all, Trump and his Republican allies uh, have declared them, uh, those two politicians, to be uh, disloyal, has sought for their removal. Uh, So Trump is backing another candidate to uh, challenge and replace Kemp. Uh, He's doing the same thing with Raffensperger. Meanwhile, the state Republican Party has censured Raffensperger and has removed him from uh, the critical role as Secretary of State. Of, of the voting chair of the board of elections for the state. That is to say, even if he wins re-election in office, he will not have a vote in certifying the next presidential election. They're simply saying, you don't have that power anymore. And for good measure, in order to assist Trump, they have given more power to the state election board, minus Raffensperger, to fire the county election authorities who supervise and certify the vote in places like Fulton County, which happens to be uh, Atlanta, and uh, the center of Democratic voting power in the state. So they've increased partisan control over the election results, removed the obstacle in Raffensburger uh, and is trying to unseat both him and Kemp. They're doing things much like this all around the country. Every obstacle Trump faced is being assaulted now by his loyalists.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that nationally. It seems to me there's been a lot of attention to the uh, machinations in Texas, but uh, Biden didn't win Texas, and so you could say, well, you do you do stuff as bad as you want in Texas, it actually doesn't change a single electoral vote. Uh, what is the universe of states? that plausibly could vote against Donald Trump and actually have these machinations that you're describing either at the certification level or the, we're going to talk about the constitutional theory in in a minute, the state legislature simply deciding not to honor the vote and certifying its own electors. What are the universe of states where these machinations actually could be dispositive for the electoral vote going to a candidate other than the one that won it?
1: So first, there are the states where the legislature has made affirmative changes in law or in personnel that would directly assist Trump in overthrowing the election results. So you have new laws in Arizona that affect who the referee is. For example, the governor of Arizona, And the legislature are republican the secretary of state katie hobbs the incumbent uh, is democrat so the legislature passed a law that removed katie hobbs the secretary of state from the line of officials who may be involved in litigation over an election they've simply said you can't represent the state in litigating the election we're going to give that power instead to the republican attorney general and we're doing that only for purposes of this election period, in case we elect a Republican later for secretary of state, we'll, we'll restore that power. There was a bill in, uh, in committee in Arizona that was truly remarkable, and it harked back to what was happening in 2020. Trump was asking state legislatures to decertify the certifications of the election and the certified electors representing their states he was asking them to do that long after the electoral uh, ballots were cast on December 14th what trouble with that is that there's no such thing as decertification it doesn't exist under the constitution uh, or under any of the state laws and so arizona legislature proposed a bill that said that at any point up until the inauguration of the next president the state legislature would have sole authority by a simple majority vote to decertify the electors that had been sent by that state to be counted in the Electoral College. That bill has not yet passed, but it, it's a remarkable thing. It's showing that Trump acolytes are trying to show their loyalty to him by inventing a whole new concept and law that didn't exist just because he was asking for it last time.
0: So you've mentioned Georgia, you've mentioned Arizona. These are obviously two big ones because, you know, there are states that Trump needed to win, in 2000, and will need to win in 2024, and didn't win. But if you give them both to Trump, Biden still wins the election in 2020. What are the other states where we are seeing this that are where the action is actually potentially dispositive vis-a-vis electoral moving electoral votes?
1: All right. Well, you, if you add if you add to those two states, Wisconsin, which is next in the in line, uh, where The Republican Party is just blatantly and frankly taking over election administration from the bipartisan board that it had created itself uh, a while back. That's another one. So Wisconsin would be the third. Those three states, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, would be enough to to flip the election. Uh, There are Republicans working in this direction in Pennsylvania and Michigan, but they have the problem that at the moment there are Democratic incumbents as governor who can veto legislation. There is no such thing as a veto over a legislative appointment of electors, at least most probably not. If the the legislature is trying to seize back its power under Article II of the Constitution uh, to appoint electors directly, the Constitution says nothing about doing this by uh, legislation that requires a governor's signature. Uh, And so uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan are contemplating more seriously than they did last time, that they could actually appoint electors directly, which does take us into the uh, theory of constitutional litigation that you wanted to get to.
0: Yeah. So let's let this is a good transition to that subject. It seems to me that there's three levels at which this game is being played before before you get to the violent uprising issue that you spend a lot of time on in your piece. I don't mean to minimize violent uprisings, but they're by nature lawless. And so uh, for a law-focused podcast, uh, let's do the law first, then we can do the law, the, the the truly lawless stuff. Uh, the constitutional theory here seems to me to have two elements, and the merits of which are not obviously the same, right? So one is whether when the Constitution says that the electors will be chosen in a manner that the state legislature shall determine, whether that reference to a state legislature in a Bush v. Gore concurrence kind of fashion precludes the action of any uh, at-state-level actor other than the legislature. The governor has no role. The the local election officials can't make kind of interstitial judgments. The second question is, does the legislature even have to have an election at all? Or can it simply say, you know, the voters said Joe Biden, but the voters are dunderheads. We're sending a state of elect- slate of electors for Donald Trump. And so I guess my question is, I mean both both theories are theories of state legislative exclusivity in this and both seem to me to be very important to the strategy because one is an effort to keep all these pesky local electoral f- officials out of the process of you know making rules uh making policy and frankly counting votes uh, and the other is an effort to have the ability to say, screw the people, we're just doing this the way we want to do it. And I guess, the, I guess my question is, how much of this strategy is ultimately about these final sort of exclusive legislative prerogatives? How much is this really all about those authorities at the end of the day?
1: So there are lots of ways to look at the question. I think what The Roberts concurrence said in Bush v. Gore uh, was that...
0: You mean the Rehnquist concurrence?
1: Sorry, yes, I do mean the Rehnquist concurrence. Said that Article II gives legislators the exclusive plenary power to choose the manner of selection of electors, that the states have all ceded that authority to their voters in the manner we're accustomed to, but that the legislators could take back that power at any time. Whether he meant literally at any time is up in the air because there are not many people who think a legislature can hold an election for president, allow the voters to cast their ballots, and then after the fact say we've changed our mind, uh, we're going to appoint electors directly without regard to what the voters uh, have voted for. But if if, if a state legislature were to uh, pass a bill uh, today saying that for 2024, we're not going to allow Pennsylvanians to vote for president, we're just going to decide ourselves.
0: Clearly constitutional, right?
1: Almost certainly is constitutional, and of course, is so profoundly anti democratic that even in these days, it's hard to imagine them willing to say that openly. Uh, and face voters afterwards uh, on the platform that you don't get a vote for president. But if they did that, if they tried to do that, they could probably get away with it. Although politically, I think they couldn't. And I think that the whole, I, I think the the backlash would be extraordinary. And they would nonetheless uh, still be holding elections for their own jobs. Uh, state senators, state house members, uh, members of Congress would still have to be elected by the people. They'd simply be saying, "For the president, uh, you don't get a vote."
0: All right. So, so wait. Let 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 me let me poke at that for a minute because I think you're making a really important distinction that may, in a in a very minor way, undermine the direness of the problem. Not in a major way, but in a if we're talking about what the limits of the Barkelman nightmare theory is, you may have you may have just made a distinction that offers one. So you're saying, and I agree, that if a state defines the time and manner and place, you know, of of the election, it's up to us, we're going to send electors for the candidate of our choice. That's clearly constitutional, but so anti-democratic that no state legislature would have the, the gumption to admit that they were doing that. But if they define the place and manner of it in a way like we're going to have an election, there's a much more serious constitutional question about whether they get to then not honor the results of that and simply appoint electors of their own. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, it's not only controversial, it's it's unlikely to be lawful because of uh, voter reliance to say, voters, you choose a president, and then afterward, never mind, we're choosing the president. But it's not also... Unclear whether it would even come to the court because the Electoral Count Act of 1887 says that if multiple slates of electors are put forward to the president of the Senate and the National Archives and January 6th comes again and now Congress has before it Biden electors that were selected by the people and Trump electors were selected by the legislature and Congress uh, is the one to decide. Which electors to honor, if either? Because one scenario is that they say
0: just exclude the state altogether.
1: Right, all you six million Pennsylvania voters, you know, you were just tossing your votes.
0: Okay, so so this is really interesting and really important. So the the grandest theory of the the Bark Elman nightmare scenario depends at the end of the day. On who controls the two houses of Congress, right? because if you imagine a trumpist sort of a, not a Republican sweep, but a Trumpist Republican sweep, which is at least philosophically a different thing if it's even if it's not politically a different thing, in two thousand twenty two so that you had two houses of the legislature that were both controlled by people who were at least tolerant of the effort that you're describing. That fact itself could be dispositive of the adjudication, right?
1: This is one important reason why Trump is in a much better, stronger position to overthrow the election in 2024 than he was in 2020, uh, because Congress was split in 2020. No one party controlled both houses of Congress, uh, which led to potential scenarios that I had written about in September in which Congress could be deadlocked and unable to decide which electors to seat. But if Republicans uh, take back the house and Senate in next year's election, then Republicans will be the ones to decide uh, on the electors and the performance of the party in terms of its obeisance uh, to Trump and its willingness to do whatever he asks and demands doesn't give me confidence that they would Follow a sort of fair accounting of what the voters have decided. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
0: Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I wanna say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, It finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent Lawfare 20. I want to go back to uh, the other component of the theory, which is, you know, legislative exclusivity as to the rules, right? Because this is where I think the irrespective of who's in control of Congress in 2024, the problems that you're describing are actually very acute. And Really depends on a different adjudicator, which is the Supreme Court, on which I think that Bush Free Gore theory may actually have five votes at this point, uh, although we don't know for sure. It seems to me you can do, and they are trying to do, a great deal of work in stacking the deck in a close election simply by not letting local officials have any latitude or statewide officials who you're not confident in any role in the disposition of electoral counting or policy.
1: Oh, that's that's exactly right. And this is where another version of this uh, constitutional doctrine comes in. It's called uh, the independent state legislature doctrine. And what it says is that because the legislature has plenary power over electors, that no other authority is capable lawfully of modifying the legislature's rules about how elections are conducted. So for example, even though a state legislature is subject to the constitution and therefore subject to the judiciary of that state, a strong version of this argument of independent state legislature is that even if the state Supreme Court rules Uh, That the legislature must allow three additional days of voting for mail ballots to come in, uh, on account of the pandemic, which happened in Pennsylvania. Even though the Supreme Court rules that the state Supreme Court, uh, the legislature is not bound by it, and in fact, votes that come in during that three-day period uh, will not be counted uh, because the legislature didn't authorize that. And likewise, you have uh, you have. a theory that would say that uh, federal court rulings can't change legislative rules. And you you have a theory that state officials and local officials, administrators of elections, can't say, for example, we had a power outage for three hours, so we're going to hold the polling place open for three additional hours today, or all the hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of accommodations that have to be made that aren't explicitly described by state legislative rules but they're just subordinate decisions that have to be made by administrators. Any of them could be the excuse for saying uh, the legislature was not honored and uh, the elections, as as counted, won't stand.
0: Right. So how do you, if you're imagining the implementation of the the Gelman nightmare scenario, how do you imagine it? Like, what's the order of... Of fear in terms of, is the the primary fear that the rules are sufficiently stacked so that the votes get counted and certified in an inaccurate fashion? Or is the primary fear that maybe even that fails and you end up with a legislative appointment of a slate of electors that then Congress winks and accepts?
1: I think both could happen. I, I think that what what we're not likely to see is a legislature that baldly states we see that Biden has won the state vote, but we're going to appoint Trump electors anyway. They're going to say instead that the voting results are unreliable, or violated the law, or were fraudulent. Uh, they'll say the voters failed to make a choice because the election was held under rules that they hadn't authorized. Uh, or that there was fraud, or, or are any number of excuses like this. So, in the first instance, they're doing the traditional Republican voter suppression. They're they're uh, setting rules in many states that are calculated to reduce the number of minority voters, reduce the number of very young voters whose addresses tend to change frequently, for example, and may not match on voter rolls. Uh, to reduce the number of voters who rely on drop boxes uh, because they can't get to uh, polls on election day. So those rules will largely be enforced uh, in the next election and will diminish the democratic vote to some extent. But then there's the question of whether there is an after the fact excuse saying you didn't follow rules X, Y, or Z, or you did A, B, and C, which we did not authorize you to do, and therefore, Uh, Those votes can't count. And maybe, therefore, because those votes can't be distinguished from the other votes, we have a generalized failure uh, to run a valid election. And we therefore have no choice but to appoint electors.
0: So, Bart, before we go to audience questions, I have two other issues I want to cover. The first is your uh, criticisms of the Biden administration for not treating this as a five alarm fire, despite occasionally. Rhetorically doing so. What should they be doing that they're not, given that all of this at the end of the day, or a great deal of it, is stuff that is happening at the state legislative level over which state legislators claim a constitutional exclusivity and predominance? What could the president be doing that he's not doing?
1: Well, I have a fairly unsatisfactory answer to this because first of all, it's not my role to say what they should do. Uh, My role is to point out what's happening and analyze what the implications are and to say, this is an urgent problem. Thank God for society that I'm not in charge of deciding solutions because I wouldn't be any good at it. But I would say at minimum that you would like to see the president treating this as an urgent matter because he described it in a speech as the gravest threat to democracy since the Civil War. If you're gonna use language like that, which I think is entirely appropriate, then it implies you're gonna take action commensurate. And what has he done? What has he done? Has he, it may be in part a question of marshaling his formal authority as president, but lots more of leadership has to do with marshaling public support and opposition and the use of civil society resources to solve a problem. You have not seen him use his maximum efforts to adjust the filibuster for voting rights. He he has given greater priority manifestly to his infrastructure bill and to his social spending bill. He's also got COVID. He's got climate change. He's got a lot of big issues on his plate and shouldn't ignore them. But My position is that a threat to the fundamental democratic institutions of the state that could result in an election being overthrown the next time we hold one should rise higher on his priority list than it has.
0: All right. Finally, I want to tack back to what is, I think, the overwhelming number of words in the article, which is your account of the growing insurrectionist culture and uh, the attitudes uh, toward violence of that culture. What is the connective tissue between those two parts of the article? I mean, at one level, it's obvious, right? There's a violent insurrection that happened, and there's a movement that, you know, in an attempt to overturn an election, and there's a movement of people who are, have very scary racial attitudes own a lot of guns and believe in violence to reinstall Donald Trump that might number around 21 million people. At another level it's not obvious at all because everything we've just been talking about has been stuff that takes place, you know, at the legal level and uh, involves democratic processes if not necessarily democratic outcomes and they're not processes that are Obviously swayed by a bunch of people you know who who like violence, and so what is the what is the real connection between that last third of the article and the body of the article about scary people?
1: I'm glad you asked that because I think there is an important connection so I mean, first of all, just for those who haven't read it, there is now uh an evolving mass political movement that is. Comfortable with and supportive of violence, and we haven't had that in this country for about a hundred years, uh, since the since the sort of revival of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, the, the second movement of the Klan. Uh, we haven't had you know large numbers of middle class Americans prepared to support political violence. The zeal of the Trump supporters, their passionate belief that the election was stolen from Trump, that. Biden is an illegitimate president and a tyrant who does not have the consent of the people. That is the most important fact to know about today's Republican Party. Today's Republican Party is is run by politicians who do not themselves believe that Biden stole the election, but are obliged to pretend they do or at minimum are obliged not to cast doubt on it because they are afraid of this politically active and passionate base, some part of which is violent. The party does not have room for anyone who questions the the fundamental passions of this Trump base. Trump is not the mastermind of all these picky legislative and and rules changes and uh, constitutional doctrines. He obviously isn't capable of that sort of thing. But he and his passionate base of supporters, sometimes violent supporters, have put the fear of God into Republican officials all around the country. And also, opportunistically, they've learned that the Trumpier you could be, the more aggressive, the more out there you could be in support of Trump and his claims of fraudulent election, and the more you can fix the election for next time, the better the base will like it. And so I think the energy behind all these legalistic changes we've been talking about does come from that base.
0: All right, we're going to go to audience questions. Uh, Christopher, the floor is yours.
2: Hi, uh, Barton. Uh, excellent article. So you, you conclude by saying that um, Trump may well win a uh, the 20, 2024 election in a fair way, but he doesn't intend to to take t- take the chance that it that he he loses. Um, so I wanted to ask you we've seen, I think, a, 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 at least three, three elections where a losing vice president has 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 presided over the count, over the loss. So I think it was first in the 1800s and then um, Al Gore and, and then Mike Pence. So how, how confident are you that with, with, with all this happening, if it gets to a, an outcome where Biden and Harris are reelected, that the count and everything would would go off uh, routinely.
1: So one question might be, would Kamala Harris do uh, what Trump wanted Pence to do and claim the power to decide which electors were valid herself on her own authority in case that there were uh, dueling slates of electors brought to Congress? That is highly unlikely. I mean, no Democrat could say with a straight face that she has that plenary power that uh, John Eastman wanted to claim for Pence. And Democrats haven't challenged the constitutionality of the Electoral Count Act in the way that uh, Republicans began to do toward the end of the last cycle. Uh, So it might be that she presided over a count on January 6th, 2025, in which there were dueling slates of electors, and the Republican House and Republican Senate voted to count the Republican electors, even if the Democratic electors were the ones that came from the state votes. Uh, And she would be in an awful position, but I don't think she would succeed if she tried to claim authority to make the decision herself.
0: And what would, just to be clear, what would be the mechanism by which by which she would, I mean, it would be, she would basically preside over the the dispute. The houses would break into separate proceedings and vote and come back with an outcome and it would bind her, right?
1: More or less, yes. The, the, the Constitution itself says that the uh, electoral ballots from the states shall be opened by the vice president in the presence of the House and the Senate. And the votes shall then be counted, passive voice. So who counts them? Constitution was silent on that. And so Congress, uh, after a very bad experience in 1876, passed uh, the Electoral Count Act, which specified procedures. It's a very poorly drafted act. It's got gaps and holes in it. But it's not terribly ambiguous about what will happen if the same party controls both houses. House and Senate would each break up to it, it, it into its own chamber and vote on the slates of electors and come back and present those votes to the vice president, who has no deciding authority herself.
0: Harry, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, Ben. Um, my question is the following. Since a state legislature chooses the manner of choosing the electors, does that arguably preclude the legislature? from choosing a second slate of electors after an election because there is no law regulating the manner in which the two house state legislature would go about choosing a second slate. I guess the question assumes that a state legislature can only act lawfully. If it doesn't act lawfully, it's not acting as the state legislature and therefore it can only act according to some preceding
1: law. Uh, That's exactly uh, the form of one argument against the idea that the legislature could choose electors after permitting an election. Uh, the argument is that the power that the legislature's exercised was the power to say, we are going to choose electors this year by means of an election held among the voters and whoever wins the most votes uh, will win the electors. And that, that that power does not allow the legislature to act contrary to that law that it passed in advance of the election. Uh, the, uh, the counterpoint argument would be that uh, the legislature's inherent power under Article II of the Constitution is never relinquished.
0: Joyce, who asks me to read her question, uh, asks, the Congress unsuccessfully so far has tried to enact an updated Voting Rights Act. It seemed based on what you report and what we are seeing that there needs to be some federal guidelines for how states and local governments run elections. Besides amending the Constitution, which is probably impossible, have you any thoughts about what reasonable guidelines we should work on at a national level?
1: I'm not expert enough to understand the boundaries between federal authority and state authority over state elections. Certainly when it comes to federal elections, Congress has authority to tell the states how to conduct them. And so uh, there are federal legal provisions that would for example require that everyone who has a driver's license be automatically registered to vote there are a number of voter suppression methods that republicans have used around the country that would be ruled out by uh, update to the voting rights act and other federal legislative proposals all of which are being filibustered by republicans whether the federal law can reach into uh, some of the legal tricks that are being employed now to infiltrate uh, state election administration authorities, I'm not sure.
0: So Auntie has a related question, uh, somewhat broader.
1: Thank you. So is there any chance whatsoever of federal election reform to do away with state electors in presidential elections and move toward a direct nationwide popular vote election, even in the case if uh, Democrats held both houses of uh, Congress? Thank you. I won't claim to be expert in this, but my answer would be no. There is no chance of that, because it would require a constitutional amendment, and there is such an obvious correlation between the party interests of the Republican Party to to keep the Electoral College that I can't imagine you could get the supermajorities required for a constitutional amendment.
0: What about the state-level activity in that direction, you know, oriented around the National Popular Vote Compact? It seems to have quite a bit of state-level support, but not enough to get it in the ballpark of actual implementation. Is that fair?
1: This is the idea, just to be sure I understand you, that that states make a compact that, that they will each send their electoral votes uh, in favor of whichever candidate won the national popular vote.
0: Correct. And I think it's been, you know, 16 or 17 states have, have passed legislation signing up for it, but the momentum has definitely stalled and it's hard to see how it gets to anything like states controlling 270 electoral votes.
1: Yeah, I, I the problem is the same as abolishing the Electoral College, it, it, and this would have an impact that's comparable. Since 1992, Democrats have won almost every presidential election according to the popular vote. So no rational Republican is going to support this proposal uh, knowing that it will dramatically diminish the Republican chances of winning the presidency.
0: John, the floor is yours. First, Thank you uh, for this important work. The focus for recent conversations seems to be on the decline of democracy. Uh, But are you finding that people understand the implications of that phrase? And I I know my question is more about advocacy than journalism, but I'd like your thoughts. Would it help generate motivation before it's too late to dig into the hypotheticals for which we do have some high degree of confidence, um, such as silencing of journalists and academics, Government surveillance to ascertain indicators of resistance to the regime, social media, uh, even enforcing party loyalty through the manipulation of federal funds. I'm picking on those because we saw some aspects of that in the previous administration. So I'm curious on your thoughts of how to help this land better among those that perhaps aren't reading your piece.
1: That's a really interesting question. Uh, I'm not in the advocacy business any more than I have crossed already in the way that I wrote this piece, and it's further and further from. Empirical journalism to uh, start to postulate what the future would bring under anti-democratic authoritarian government, but I'd I'd certainly like to see uh, studies and opinion articles uh, on this subject and in exactly the areas you talked about. What what do you get when you have an authoritarian government that is no longer subject to popular sovereignty? Uh, well, yeah, you get repression. You get you you get the arrest of journalists. You get the jailing of political opponents. You get people fired from government jobs who don't support uh, the regime in power. And those scenarios could be described with reference to things that are already happening in uh, formerly democratic countries around the world that are beginning to regress, including Hungary and Poland.
0: Elaine, the floor is yours. I'm wondering if you see the final results of the election in 2024 unresolved? Or is it going to go back to the Supreme Court? How do you mean unresolved? Because of lawsuits that are brought because of the electors aren't representing the people. It's undep- somebody, somebody must be representing the people here. So, so that's a really interesting question. And let, let, let me tease it out a little bit, because one possible effect of what you're describing is not that a state successfully you know state legislators successfully get Congress to count the wrong electoral votes or but simply that you throw the whole thing into confusion and you have a mess of litigation competing slates of electors and competing claims about who wins um and I'm curious i i i I think I'm channeling Elaine correctly here. Like, what happens if the result is, you know, January 6th, we have an electoral count and there is genuine dispute that can't be resolved? I guess the Constitution says it goes to the House of Representatives, right?
1: Uh, Sort of. There was a plausible scenario like that, and I spent some time and space on it in my September 2020 article, uh, that with the House and Senate split that there there were scenarios for deadlock in which you could have two or even three people laying claim to the presidency, the third being the Speaker of the House, under certain circumstances based on the ambiguities and failures uh, of the Electoral Count Act. With Republicans in control of both houses of Congress, um, that's exceedingly unlikely. Uh, If there are dueling slates of electors, the Republican-controlled Congress is either going to accept the Republican electors, or it's going to throw out electors uh, from all the states that have dueling slates, which will leave nobody with 270 electoral votes. And then under the 12th Amendment, the election is thrown to the House of Representatives. And uh, it's not a simple majority vote in the House of Representatives. It's a, it's a vote state by state. Each state gets one vote based on the composition of its of its state delegation. Uh, and right now, even Without Republicans in control of the House, Republicans do control 26 of the 50 state votes. So under the 12th Amendment scenario, the Republican wins.
0: I have one question before we let you go, Bart. Do you see any ray of hope in this? I mean, you've described a kind of inexorable slide toward a very, very bad place. What are the notches on the slippery slope here, if any, that give you any hope about it?
1: I describe I would say a uh an unchecked slide towards authoritarianism but I don't believe that it's incapable of being checked. I don't have a recipe for how you fix this but I do have some I would say naive confidence that we're not going to let ourselves slide that far that somehow something will arise uh to stop the actual theft of a presidential election and It may be that sufficient public uprising against these anti-majoritarian, anti-democratic changes will deter state legislators from trying to discard the votes of millions of voters. It may be that pro-democratic forces will match the Republican intensity in uh, seeking out local committee positions and local electoral administration positions and county authorities uh, and secretaries of state, and, and will not allow to go unanswered the efforts by supporters of the big lie to take over those positions. It may be that federal legislation will be passed. I don't know what the mechanism will, will be, and it may be simply a failure of imagination on my part, but I I I have not come to grips with the belief that these Trump efforts to steal an election will actually succeed.
0: We are going to leave it there. Bart Gelman, it's a very important piece of work. For those who have not read it, you should. The worst that'll happen is you'll think Bart's a bit alarmist. But, you know, that's what a lot of people thought last time. And the September 2020 article does not read alarmist in light of what happened. So read it. Give it some good consideration. Bart Gelman, pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. The
0: Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, it's the season to buy Lawfare merch, and you can do that at thelawfarestore.com. We got pens, we got notebooks, we got challenge coins, we got hats, we got everything except socks. Those are already sold out. You should buy them up because, you know, they won't be there forever. You can get an ad-free version of this podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening